on 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and it is an absolute pleasure to have a chat to a lady who has just arrived in Australia, uh, Dr. Beryl D'Souza. She heads up the uh, Dignity Freedom Network and heads up a whole coalition of anti-trafficking teams in India and uh, was the person who uh, really started the Good Shepherd Healthcare, which we're going to talk about as well. She joins me on the line, Dr. Beryl D'Souza. Beryl, thanks so much. Thanks, Clayton. It's lovely to speak to all of our listeners today. It's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what these organisations are, and then we're going to dig into some of those stories as well. Let's start off with the Good Shepherd Healthcare, all of these various aspects. Could you explain what they are and what your role is with them? Yes. Well, Good Shepherd is a, a charity that works for areas of social justice, uh, particularly among providing education for vulnerable communities, um, health, primary health care, and uh, anti-trafficking and protection of exploitation of women and girls. It's been doing that for over 15 years now uh, and has a span of about close to 100 schools with about 20,000 plus children in the schools um, and about 75 uh, primary health centers, uh, virtual health centers, uh, and alongside a robust anti-trafficking program among women and girls affected by various forms of sexual exploitation. The reason that for you this is such a passion project, I mean, obviously for each of us as we hear about um, trafficking or we hear about exploitation, none of us think that's okay. Um, but not everybody is sort of then dedicating whole, you know, parts of their life and pretty much their whole life to, to, to making sure these things change. So what was the reason for you to say, look, I, I want to make sure I'm setting these up and getting involved in these sorts of things? Well, a couple of incidents happened in my life where I had to, uh, I was faced with the reality of the life of a woman affected by this pro problem. Initially, when I was a young doctor, I got to work in a little hospital where women were about the same age that I were and were affected with sexually transmitted Ill illnesses and HIV and AIDS. And at that time, there was very little access to medicines to help them. Um, and the hospital and the team that I worked with, we tried our best to get them the health care, but not much was available for them. And we basically helped them uh, die with dignity. Uh, and it's quite impactful if you get to help a few hundred women die uh, when you think you become a doctor to help cure illness. So it was like a wake-up call for me. And then uh, as I worked in, a, in another hospital, I was faced with a young girl who was only 15 years old and was a victim of commercial sexual exploitation in the home that she was staying in. Uh, when I was working with rescuing her and with the local police, I was sort of challenged by the police officer that it was a hopeless, hopeless uh, 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 attempt to rescue girls and women from sexual exploitation because it was... Uh, self-sustaining as he said as he put it he said don't you know 85 percent of girls will go back so there's no point in you wasting your efforts here and since I was you know in particular involved with the care of this 15 year old girl it was it seemed all wrong you know and then I said and he was telling that to me as to you know let me know that these were bad girls these were bad women and that it was a pointless 
case. And to me, it was like, this is a child. And if that is the truth, then the whole system is flawed. And this requires then a systemic effort to uh, stop and prevent this from continuing. So that was how I, myself and the team made a decision that this has to stop. And we would then dedicate our time and efforts towards that. There's two, two things I want to really grab out of the, the comments you've made there. One is that this sort of idea, and, and perhaps it's something we don't understand as much in Australia, but this concept that um, perhaps fellow relatives or those close to somebody might actually um, allow um, a, a relative or a family member to be either sold into some sort of slavery or used um, in some way, shape or form. Is it incredibly prevalent? Is it just that there's enough that therefore it's something that is um, we need to look at? Could you talk into that a little bit? I think most of us here in Australia don't quite understand uh, the different aspects of that and, and how, um, not necessarily culturally is the wrong word to that, but that it, it it's more accepted than it would be perhaps here in Australia. Absolutely, yes. So very often it is a family member who helps uh, initiate the girl into any form of sexual exploitation. Um, and so years back when I began my work, it would be like, what kind of family member can do this? How, you know, how fallen or how, you know, how sick could a parent be? But as I got to work with these communities over the last decade or so, I've got to realize, number one, there's been such abject poverty, such abject situations that there is really no other option, uh, which basically makes us the part of the problem that we've allowed, you know, the situation to get so despairing that the only option is then to, you know, I mean, what happens when, you have four children and your wife is sick. Um, uh, more than 85% of Indians will pay out of pocket for a healthcare expense. And so you, uh, if you have money, you can afford to you know, pay for that health expenditure. But if you do not have money, then you try selling your assets. If you have assets, if you have land, you sell your land. If you have cows or you, know, you have cattle, you sell it. But if you don't have that, then you know, society says, oh, you have a 15-year-old daughter. Why don't you? you know, send her to this place and you will get money. And they may not even imply that you would be exploited that way. They'll be like, you know, she'll get a good job and she'll support the family and, you know, take over that expense. And so it's sort of condoned by society that this is a good option. And of course, the parent knows that there is a risk of harm involved, but then there is no other option. And so once you've done that in society, then say this is a good thing, it becomes, sort of commonplace to then okay fine this is how life is because there are no other options and this is how I support my family and after some time when you're repeatedly involved in you know a practice that is clearly instinctively wrong it sort of becomes normalized and I would not like to use the word culture because I think it happens all around the world where you start normalizing something that is clearly instinctively wrong and it becomes a practice where, you know, your daughters are now uh, sex slaves and that's okay because that's the normal here. Thank you. That's a, a great correction on that uh, to normalising. I, I think that's a, a, a much better phrase than what I was uh, I, I, trying to attempt to, to describe. Thank you so much for explaining that to us, Beryl, too. The, the other part of your, your first comment I wanted to grab a hold of was the fact that you said, well, me and the team around us, we decided... Um, this is something we're going to do something about. And here you are, you had, you know, police men saying, look, you know, 85% of people are going to 
girls are going to go back to this anyway. They're, it's no point. Uh, you're saying that there's this aspect of normalisation, and yet here you are saying, hold on, we've got to do something. Um, it must have felt like a big mountain to, to, to be trying to climb and push back so much of it. How did you even start that, and, and how have you continued, I suppose? Because I'm imagining there's a fair bit of opposition to, to, to it happening and you trying to change this. Yes. Well, I I was able to, I mean, we were able to find, first of all, strength and the power of one. So, you know, the one person that you help, uh, despite the extreme challenges you have, and to see transformation in that one person is very, very inspiring. And when that one person then goes on to help another person, that again, you know, shows the sustainability and the long-term impact of your work. So, uh, now that we've come along the journey, we see that so many of our victims have now become partners with us. Uh, one unique aspect of our program is that it's very grassroots level and that the, the leaders of the program are themselves victims who have now turned into leaders. So they're no longer in the victim mode. They've, they've moved past the survivor mode to where they're thrivers and they're like this amazing group of powerful women who want to see evil stop who want to claim justice for themselves and their families, their women, their communities. Um, and that's been really inspiring. And I think the perfect, you know, treasure that we have been able to see all these years. Uh, we've had so many people come alongside us of various states and denominations who have stood with us. We have uh, strong partnerships with, you know, local police and legal workers. Uh, and again, that's been very encouraging. So, Essentially to say that, you know, there's a lot of good out there and people instinctively we have a desire to not have evil people perpetuated or to stop something that's unjust. And I think that's something that can resonate across seas as well, that, you know, this is wrong and that this hasn't, this shouldn't be accepted. Um, we're going to come back in a couple of minutes' time and I want to talk specifically about how the program works and we want to hear some of the stories and we may not be able to use people's names specifically but we'd love to, to hear you, you describing some of it. But before we do get to that, um, could you take us through this sort of idea of, and again it's something that is a little more foreign to us here in Australia, but often those who you are working with are the lowest caste within Indian society which is still quite a, a strong way of looking and viewing at the world. Could you talk to us about how um, that that group of people so often are just not cared for in, in any way um, in Indian society? Yes, that's a very good question, Clayton. Um, uh, so according to uh, ancient Indian times, Indian society was uh, divided into different castes. Uh, similar to classes and sections of society, except that the one difference being that you were born into a caste. Uh, it comes out of a myth or mythology that God created man differently, and so God created man from different parts of his body, and those that were from his upper parts of his body, so the head and the trunk, the shoulders, were known as the forward caste. Um, and those that were formed from his feet were known as the lower caste. And then there's a huge group of people in, uh, known as the outcasts or the Dalits or the untouchables who are not created in God's image. And even today, form predominantly India's working class, India's, uh, you know, the great migrant labor class, the great, you know, when you talk about poverty in India, when you talk about, 
various forms of uh, forced labor or trafficking. These are the ones who are being victimized by it. So it cannot purely be coincidental then that, you know, that caste is a strong determinant of whether a person has uh, a right to education, to shelter, to a safe and sound life. Um, and so even though officially there have been huge, huge steps by the government in uh, affirming those from the lower caste and the outcast communities, uh, we're still way behind, you know, the UN millennial goals of sustainable development where women are protected from violence or there is right to education for everyone. Um, and so the caste system continues to be seen in the most uh, discreet and, you know, not obscure ways where unless you go looking for it, you may think, oh, this is just poverty or this is not a big problem. Uh, so primarily with the women that I work with, you know, the one, women who are exploited by religious exploitation of sex, uh, if you look and the studies have been done, that 99% of them belong to uh, the scheduled caste or the Dalits, which again is another portrayal of the fact that Surely there is a caste-based discrimination that, you know, makes a woman vulnerable to sexual exploitation. And these are, again, main givers that caste-based exploitation, oppression, injustices is prevalent in India today. And that, you know, more concerted efforts need to be taken at various state, national and international level to ensure that we have a more just society. Dr. Beryl D'Souza is my guest here on 89.9 The Light and In Conversation. She heads up the Dignity Freedom Network's um, anti-trafficking team all throughout India and is actually going to be speaking this coming Thursday night in Ringwood. And so if you'd like to find out more and perhaps head along to that dinner, dfn.org.au, dfn.org.au. We're going to be back with Dr. Beryl in just a couple of moments' time. We are going to find out more about the specific aspects of this program and what actually happens for these girls as they are changed from one thing to another by the help of those in Dr. Beryl's team. Um, and also we're going to hear some of those specific stories on the way next here on 89.9 The Light. You're in conversation with Clayton and Dr. Beryl D'Souza is my guest uh, from the Dignity Freedom Network, has just travelled over from India and will be speaking this coming uh, Thursday at Ringwood. You can head along to that dinner, dfn.org.au, and heads up all the anti-trafficking teams in India. Uh, Dr. Brown, before we even sort of go into the, the, the aspects around what the actual program does, which I'm very, very keen to hear how you do that. Firstly, I know that you have a, a Christian faith. How does that actually inspire the work that you are doing as you, you head and care for so many people? I think that uh, faith to me particularly is very important in how I view the world around me, how I view myself and, and how I react to the world. Um, uh, Teachings from from our scriptures have, you know, helped me in uh, developing my own self sense of worth. And I think, particularly when I work with women who work, I mean, who've been exploited and have lived lives of amazing trauma, understanding worth can be a huge, huge uh, challenge to them because you know your families, your communities have taught you that there's no worth. Uh, and so having a faith-based approach helps us value each other in a way that, you know, that celebrates incredibly this gift of life and, you know, each one's individuality and uniqueness and the belief that uh, 
you know, basically creating the image of God and that nothing can change that no matter where we've been or what's happened to us or what level of education or economic or caste status we have. Um, having said that, that the work that we do in the communities are with, you know, women from various faiths or of no faith, particularly with uh, the form of religious exploitation on the basis of uh, for sex. Uh, the women are actually uh, very wary of God and religion. And so religion is not at all a player in the work we do. It's more about value and faith, which is, of course, as I said, because of our faith. But it's not a part of our agenda to see, you know, religious changes happen in the people that we work in. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, and it's uh, fantastic to see the the passion of what it is that is what what you are a part of and, and your belief system and how then that impacts others as you, you go through whatever they may may or not believe you you just treat them with such value and worth and, and dignity um can you take us through actually what does occur so so as a you might find a, a girl who has been uh, found themselves in this situation in some way shape or form what, what actually happens as you get involved and and through the dignity freedom network it actually occurs for this this girl Right. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, that it's a grassroots level program in rural uh, Telangana, where uh, particularly we have adopted a few hundred villages, about 300 villages, where women who are victims, who were once victims themselves, have been rescued, empowered, educated, and have now turned into leaders in their community. Uh, they're like vigilantes. <laughs> it makes me very excited because amazing what these women do and their main job is then to look out for other young women vulnerable girls who are at risk of being put into the same situation that they were and then tie up with local community forces there's a strong team of paralegal workers social workers health workers teachers who then go in and stop you know the process of another girl being sold into any form of sexual exploitation. Uh, and often it can be at their own personal safety and risk. So we have stories where women have been beaten up or women have been abused or threatened or sent to the police station at 3 a.m. in the morning with no other female police officer being there. And yet these women are these strong models uh, of safety and you know prevention because they just don't want to see any young girl again get into the same situation that they were at uh, and the so prevention is a huge huge aspect of the work that we do at a grassroots level uh, every week there are hundreds and hundreds of community meetings that happen all across yeah. rural telangana where the law is talked about um, you know in in india we have a lot of laws that ban most of the evil injustices, but then at the grassroots level, the understanding of the law, what it means like, what are the, I mean, the consequences to the law, what are the uh, repenses available, that's not known to common people. And so a lot of education and awareness is done on a weekly level uh, so to prevent the system and then to look at ways of protecting women and young girls out of, you know, economically desperate situations. So it's either primary healthcare resources or it's having a girl child in school or it is, you know, looking at sustainable livelihood opportunities, 
And again, we partner with grassroots level organizations. We partner with the government and looking at all of these opportunities for these young women and girls. So I think we have about 800 girls over the last couple of years who've been put into school through the local government systems where they're in safe places because very often having a girl child at home when her parents are both out working as manual laborers puts her at risk of various forms of sexual exploitation because there is no one to look after for her. So that's something that sounds foreign in your concept, uh, the importance of having a girl at home and having her at school and how that puts her at risk. Um, alongside with the awareness programs, then comes the actual rescue, where, as I mentioned, the vigilantes tie in with the local team and the girl is then uh, taken out of a horrible situation and then placed along with the local government support, either in a government home or in a home uh, provided by Good Shepherd. Uh, if she's already been a victim of exploitation, then she goes through a whole trauma recovery model where she works with psychologists, uh, social workers, psychiatrists are required in helping her recover from her trauma. And then basically placed in a safe home where she has access to good education, healthcare, again, ongoing mental health support and vocational skills. Um, over those years, we have seen girls graduate through our shelters and it's very exciting now that we've almost had close to about 10 graduates that we have a few of these girls finishing graduation and coming back and working with us. To me, that's one great, um, uh, how do you say, reward of our work is to see that women and girls who've been through the entire process say, this is good work and we want to be part of it. Um, just a few days back, I had, I had the opportunity of talking to one of my older teenage girls in one of the shelters that we work in who was having boyfriend problems. And as a mother of three children, three boys, it's really nice to have a teenage girl talk to me about boy issues. But, you know, she was having all these uh, struggles at the same time. She was like, I'm doing well in my studies and my plan is when I finish, I want to come and work with you all. And I want to see other women and girls being helped. So that's very encouraging. So we have currently about uh, one girl working with us and about two young girls who are finishing nursing school who want to work, have committed to working in our programs to, again, support and help women like themselves out of the system of slavery. It's wonderful to hear it. And I'm, I'm guessing that over the years you've had plenty of stories um, where you were able to celebrate with them and as they have had a, a life change. Um, we, we talked way back at the start, uh, I think it was a, you were quoting effectively a police officer that said, look, you know, 85% of these girls, if they're ever, uh, ever rescued or whatever, they're, they're just going to go back to the same thing. Um, my sense is perhaps as they, they come into contact with yourself and, and the team at the Dignity Freedom Network that there's probably not that percentage. Do, do you have stats like that that says, well, actually... Uh, if they if they engage with what we do, this many don't go back now. Uh, do you have those sorts of understandings? Yes, we're actually currently working on a study, so we don't have official stats. But our estimates are that our recidivism rate is very very low, so it's probably less than five percent. Mm. Um, and the reason is not because we're the greatest organization ever, but it's because it's a very grassroots level program where we're working painstakingly within the community itself. So it's, it's not just a, you know, you rescue a girl, you take them out, you 
you know, put them through a rehab program and then relieve them. It's basically, we're working within the community itself, changing the drivers for the forms of, you know, the, the, for the root cause of exploitation. And so uh, it's a more long-lasting work, but it's also much more time-consuming and less glamorous. Um, uh, and our commitment to our women are not is not just for a short period of time. It's not just for you know, the three months or the six months or the one year, it's like for the rest of their life. Um, uh, for any one person with trauma, I was talking to a woman recently from Australia who was talking about trauma in her family of, you know, her sister who was had violence and intimate partner violence in, in the West. And 30 years later, she was still having effects of trauma that, you know, you know, express themselves in different ways. So, if you're working with young women and girls who've been traumatized at a very early age, very often with the support of their family, then that trauma is, you know, bound to be there for a very long time. So you can't just solve it in a few months or a few years. There has to be an ongoing community support. And uh, I do believe that our organization is able to provide that because it is a community program. It is a grassroots level program and it is a long-term program. So these women have opportunities of support at various ages and stages of their life. It's just wonderful. I mean, that's just remarkable to hear and, and so so stunning the results of what it is, but also that long-term commitment, uh, that idea of staying with somebody, not just for this moment and will they come in this program at this time, but for, for their life. It is truly honouring and remarkable to you and the work that you do. Uh, Beryl, um, just as we finish up, uh, for people who want to find out more or get involved, now one of the ways obviously is they can come and hear you speak a bit more uh, this coming Thursday in Ringwood and you can find out more details there and uh, get your ticket to this dinner at dfn.org.au. That's the Dignity Freedom Network, dfn.org.au. Uh, if someone can't get to that though, what's the best way for them to find out a bit more about the work and perhaps support the work of what you're doing? Well, I can give you a a number that they can call into, which is 1-800-949-774. Wonderful. 1-800-949-774 um, is a, a place you can ring and ask some questions, perhaps, if you'd like as well. That website also, dfn.org.au. Um, or they can e yeah. email info at dfn.org.au. Oh, there you go. Well, how about that? We're getting all the info at dfn.org.au. That is wonderful. I'm so passionate about this. And I think um, we've had on this program uh, a number of conversations around the sort of work that you are doing in India. And it is always so inspiring to uh, be hopefully helping in whatever way. Maybe somebody's listening and they can say, well, I can... I can go over and help the work physically or maybe say, well, I can't do that, but I can give or I can support in some way, shape or form. This is the opportunity, so I, I think, is you are heading up that team. And so we just want to say thank you for the work that you are doing, Beryl. Thank you for your time that you've shared with us today as well. Well, thank you for having me, Clayton. Dr. Beryl D'Souza, she heads up the Dignity Freedom Network as uh, the key leader who heads up all the anti-trafficking teams in India. It's a pleasure to have her on the show on In Conversation here on 89.9 The Light.